Hey there, welcome to the Single Moms with Moxie podcast. I'm your host, Mona Andre. I truly believe that the saddest thing in the world is forgotten potential. This is why I'm here, to remind you that even though you're a mom, which is an important role, it's equally important to remember that you're an individual with dreams, goals, and aspirations of your own. This podcast is a reminder that you're not alone, and there's so much more to life than laundry. I am so glad you're here. Let's dig into this episode. Charlotte Laws, welcome to the Single Moms with Moxie podcast. I am so excited to have you here. You're an author, you're an activist. You have quite the story to share. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with, um, oh my God, I don't know where to start. So you have worked with the FBI. Let's start with that because that's like, whoa. (laughs) Tell us about that. Well, I mean, the first time I worked with them, I was actually a lecturer in Quantico and I was lecturing on animal activism and um, animal rights, essentially the philosophy. But the second time was when my daughter, um, she had taken some pictures in the mirror. One of them was topless. She never intended to show it to anyone. And she sent the photos to her computer to save them because she ran out of room on her cell phone. And this was back in 2012 and she got hacked and her topless picture ended up on the most notorious revenge porn website along with her name, her city and her social media link. And so then I kind of went into private eye gear. I used to be a private detective. And so I kind of started trying to help her get the picture down and started working with other victims and found out that uh, 40% of the victims I contacted had been hacked as well. So I knew there was a hacking scheme. And so I got the FBI involved and eventually they uh, arrested the website owner and his hacker and they went to to jail. And um, Good for you. How old was your daughter at the time? My daughter was about, I think about 22, something like that. How traumatizing. How traumatizing. Wow. Really hard. And she was just completely distressed and felt violated and humiliated. Of course. You know, just it's a really tough thing. But now we have laws against revenge porn. And after all this happened, I started working with legislators to get laws in place. And we now have laws in 48 states and we're still trying to get a federal law passed. So I'm hoping that will eventually happen. So revenge porn is a that's a term I actually never heard about until I started looking into your background. So revenge porn if you don't know what it means, it's it sounds like, you know, oh, I'm going to get back at you by posting naked pictures about you. But that's not what it is at all, is it? No, it's not. It's really not the, the best term to use. It's better to say image based sexual abuse. Um, but the term revenge porn was invented by the media and it kind of caught on and that's what people know it by. But it's the distribution of neuter topless pictures without consent. And um, so it's basically it's it's kind of like a a hobby to humiliate, to get people fired, to drive them to suicide, to ruin their lives. That's terrible. I mean, there's so many different forms of, you know, negativity, cyberbullying and everything. And uh, it's awful. So you're a single mom. I I was a single mom. Yeah, I was a single mom from day one for 13 years. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Congratulations from day one. And from what I've read about your story, you, you were gung ho. You were, I want this baby. People were telling you, no, you should not have this baby. So what was your, 
I guess, inspiration or what kept you when you're young and you are pregnant and you're alone, it's so easy to be dissuaded by everybody else, right? So what helped you stay convicted to, I'm having this baby, I don't care what you say? Well, I mean, I always wanted to have a child since I was as young as I can remember. Um, I never believed in abortion for myself anyway. And I, you know, I had a, a really tough childhood. I was adopted you know, as a baby. And so I always kind of had to make my own decisions because I wasn't close to my family. I didn't feel like I could rely on them or trust them. And so I think I just became kind of independent out of necessity. So I had to kind of make my own decisions and not listen to other people. And, um, and that was the same with the people in the community, you know, where I grew up, they had a very different um, ethic from me, a very different belief system. And so I very much was an outcast and just started trying to be independent as young as I can remember. So um, naysayers were very common since I was very young. And so I learned quickly, I suppose, to just ignore them and to make my own decisions. And I was very excited when I got pregnant. I didn't try to get pregnant, but I was really happy. I was really excited and had full intention of having the baby, even though my daughter's father wanted me to have an abortion just like everyone else did. Wow. Wow. So you said that so you were adopted and you couldn't count on your family, which means that you probably didn't have the nurturing that you would have that that we all need, right? We all need right. it. It's what makes us healthy people. But then if you don't get it, for you, it turned into a strength. So yeah, I, had I, think a- it, I think it really did. I mean, I wanted to escape and I was very depressed in childhood and I very much was, I mean, I thought about suicide a lot as a kid. I mean, I just wanted to get out of Atlanta, which is where I was raised. It was upper class Atlanta. So it was very snobby. It was very racist. It was completely different value system than I had. And my family was the same way. They were very into the debutante culture and I had to be a debutante and I had to, you know, and so my mom ended up committing suicide. My dad was abusive, verbally abusive. And then my brother was killed in a car accident. So uh, I was kind of like, I just always felt very much on my own. And I always supported the civil rights movement. And my friends were, would call me an end lover like every day. And, you know, so I I was really fighting a lot of people all the time. So I think I learned I had to be a fighter to survive. That's impressive. That's impressive. It would, it could actually, and it does break a lot of people to always be, you know, going against the stream of society and our own families. Mm Mm-hmm. Very impressive. So I also read that you were the bodyguard for a prostitute. <laughs> yeah, when I moved, I moved to Las Vegas um, at one point after after I left Atlanta, I went to school in Florida for a couple of years in at University of Florida. And then I moved to Las Vegas for a couple of years. And that was kind of my first job is this woman was in my living in my apartment complex and she needed a bodyguard to go to somebody's house. And here I am like five feet tall. I am not a bodyguard type, <laughs> but she paid me 50 bucks to tag along. And it was really kind of a, like a crazy situation because it was like an orgy with all these people having sex. I had to sit there and watch, you know, wow. like, oh don't get near me, anybody, you know, so right. I'm not here to join the party. 
<laughs> right. And then I had other very interesting jobs in Vegas. I was a um, backup singer for an Elvis imitator. I was a bandit cab driver. And then I also invented a job called chip chatting, which was kind of cool because that was a job where, you know, I started out with like, I had no money hardly when I went to Vegas, but I ended up making like $300,000 a year while wow. I lived in Vegas. And then I, like an idiot, I bought all these clothes and the antiques and I like lost all my money. And I was like jet sitting around with the celebrities and all these people because I really got into party crashing and getting to know lots of well-known people. And so I ended up broke again when I came to California. I only had $500. And then it was after that that I got pregnant and had my daughter. So I certainly was not, you know, I had very little money when I got pregnant with my daughter. But for some reason, I was so excited about being a mom that I wasn't stressed out about the money. I wasn't focused on that. I was focused on, oh, I'm going to have a baby. This is so great, you know? And that was kind of, she was always from day one, very inspirational to me because, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, I thought, oh dear, I've got to get a house. I've got to get my book sold because I had written a book that I was trying to get published. Um, I've got to, you know, make money because I want to be able to provide for her. So I had all these things that I felt I had to do for my daughter. And so it inspired me. It's funny. eh? We, we, when we have children, like we can, you know, do without, we can, you know, whatever, just go through life. But as soon as we have children, boy, they really, they really set us on track. They really do. Is your daughter as determined and strong-willed as you are? She's very, you know, she's very determined. She's very successful real estate agent now. Uh, She just got married this past year. Um, She's hoping to have a baby soon. And um, so, yeah, she's very, you know, she's a determined person and she's, yeah, she's, uh, She's, she's got a lot of qualities that like, she's really good with kids and she's, she's got a lot of really cool nurturing type of qualities. So she's going to be a great mom. And to be a successful real estate agent, this is like a, it's such a hard industry to be in, especially in today's world. So good for her. Very good for her. What's your, what's your book about? Well, my first book was about, um, it was called Meet the Stars and it was about party crashing. So it was how to date your favorite celebrity, how to get into the Academy Awards, you know, how to um, get a job with Bill Gates. I mean, whatever it is you were looking to do, kind of how to make that happen. And so, and that was published. It was eventually published. I got it published um, in 1988. So my daughter was probably like one and a half years old or so when I was able to get it published. But when I was trying to get a publisher, I started crashing the publishing houses. I flew to New York. Mm -hmm. And then what I did was I would um, go in the door. They have elevators that go up to the big shots and the editors. And I would meet the underlings when they came down for lunch and just kind of befriend them and then get them to take me up and introduce me to the editors. But the problem at the time was my book was 900 pages. And so I remember one of the Simon & Schuster editors saying, you know, well, I like the idea, but it is a little bit long. She said, call me up. You get it down to 200 pages. So I knew I had a lot of work ahead of me to start editing. And um, that trip is actually when I met my daughter's father Um, I went to a pizza place while I was in New York and he was there and we, our eyes met across the room or whatever. We ended up sitting at the same table and just after spending, you know, time together for several hours, we ended up hanging out and talking. Um, I invited him to Florida for a week with me and he said, yes. 
And my adoptive dad said, you know, you don't even know this guy. He could be a mass murderer. And then he (laughs) told his mom, you know, that he was going to Florida with me. And she said, you don't even know this girl. She could be a mass murderer. (laughs) (laughs) That's how our relationship started. And, um, And we dated about a year and a half until I got pregnant. And because I got pregnant is why he broke up. Wow. And he said, you know, if you hadn't gotten pregnant, we probably would have gotten married eventually. That was his comment. So, which is a weird comment to make. Doesn't it is. It is. And why would a baby or a pregnancy, you know, right. Tear you apart. I guess he wasn't ready. Does he have a relationship with your daughter? Yes, he does. Now he didn't for many years because I didn't sue for child support, even though he's super wealthy, has trust funds, his, his parents who are not alive anymore, but they you know, were super, super wealthy and um, lived in Long Island. And um, so I didn't sue for child support because partly because I wanted to prove to myself that I could just do this. You know, I could right. raise this, raise this daughter without help from anybody. And, um, and also, cause I felt like since he wanted me to have an abortion that, and I didn't, I felt like he shouldn't have to pay, um, child support. That was my reasoning. Right. I, I can see that you're so obviously you're not an opportunist. Good for you. So what happened was though, is years down the road, um, when she was about 10, I did start getting child support and every year I had sent like a pic, you know, pictures of her and a letter to his family. And I sent it to his parents because I figured she'd share it with the two daughters and, and, you know, with the Kayla's father. And, um, and so after, I don't know, seven or eight years, I got a letter from the mom saying, please stop sending these letters and pictures every year because you're upsetting our family. And I was like, 10 years, excuse me. Yeah. And that pissed me off. So I sued for child support and then I started. And then the good thing about suing for child support is my daughter's father then felt like, well, since I'm paying, I might as well know her. And right. then he started a relationship with her. So it ended up being a really positive thing that I did that. Wow. So she's 10 years old at this point. So now she's, did she ever ask about her father before that? She wanted to meet him and he wouldn't meet her. And she wanted to talk That's to him heartbreaking. on the phone. And I remember one time she actually got on the phone and he refused to talk and she was like crying. It was, oh, yeah, that's heartbreaking. And it's, but he's actually, too. you know, he's really a great guy in general. And, um, you know, and he's been very good to her ever since he did start meeting her when she was about 10 or so. And he started flying her out to New York like twice a year. And um, she knows everybody in his family. And so it's ended up being great. Awesome. That's very good. And it could be damaging. Like if you have a, you know, depending on one, your personality and two, depending on how old you are, when a parent rejects you, even though, he didn't have that parental role in her life. So it could have been damaging for her, mm-hmm. but yeah, it turned out well. Awesome. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned that you, uh, you said my first book. So that means you've written several books. I have, I have a couple of memoirs, um, rebel and high heels. And then the other one is undercover debutante and, um, rebel tells about my life. It tells about the revenge porn story that I briefly alluded to at the beginning. Right. Right. Again, but then it also tells about my life all the way up to um, right when I leave Vegas and I come to California with only five hundred dollars. And my adoptive father was trying to bribe me to come back to Atlanta. So and he was very wealthy. And he said, I will give you five hundred thousand dollars. I'll buy you a townhouse. I'll give you a Mercedes and I'll support you the rest of your life if you wow. move to Atlanta, back to Atlanta. And because I was planning to go to, to L.A. 
And um, so I only had $500 in a Volkswagen and I came to LA and I was a maid in a house. That was my first job. I had a live-in job. I didn't even get paid for it. It was just free accommodation. Right. That was my first job. And then I went from that to renting a room for $100 a month in this little teeny weeny two bedroom house with a couple. And then I ended up being a, um, a private nurse to a paraplegic living in a mobile home down in um, not a very nice area of Los Angeles. And that's how I started. And then I just started working from there. And um, when I got to be a, um, had my daughter, um, you know, the, the great thing about that I was able to fall into that really helped me was a babysitting co-op. And um, it's basically worked where on a point system. So you, I never had to pay for babysitting my daughter's entire childhood, not wow. once. Wow. It, it was just a godsend. I mean, literally, you could always find somebody to take her and it gave her people to play with the other kids. Yep. And so you, it was mostly single moms, but there were some families and it was about 30 different people and they all lived fairly close together. And, um, and so, you know, you got different points they could pick up from school, they could do an overnight. I mean, you, you know, you had flexibility with that. And, um, and today they're doing and I think everybody should do this. I think this is a great thing, especially for somebody who's a single parent. I mean, it's just really helps because that's the hardest thing is the babysitting. Yep. But now there's something today where some people are, um, it's like a commune, but it's a mommune. They, they're calling them. Oh, I love that. Where they move in together, like you'll get like three or four single moms and their kids, they move into a house together and they each rent rooms. And then that way they can share expenses and they can babysit for each other. And that's a great idea, too. If you don't mind living in a house, you know, in a small room, that kind of thing. I had four dogs at the time as well. So I was not really a good candidate for that type of situation. But um, but yeah, so that was wonderful. And then I had to be also very creative about trying to get things for free or super inexpensive. And so I, um, I would do a lot of trades, a lot of bartering. So I had like these little silver dessert plates that I had gotten from my grandparents and I traded them with my daughter's doctor so that she got free medical exams. And so I always was trying to barter things. And today they have, um, groups, Facebook groups called buy nothing which are amazing. And you can, and you can only give away. I mean, it's free stuff. So okay, okay. Just give you, and it's tons of baby stuff and tons of kids stuff. Although there's all sorts of things on there. And I believe that it's in every city. I mean, I live in Los Angeles and I know all the areas of Los Angeles have different buy nothing groups, but they probably are in the other cities as well. And it's just your community, you know, your, your small community. So when you go to get something for free, you pick it up. It's not very far that you have to drive. Right. right. What a and, good idea. Yeah. So it's really good because it helps you out financially. And for it's sure. also good for the environment because you're reusing things. You're not yep. throwing things into the landfill. Yep. And so, as we know, as single moms, we don't always have the money right. to, to get what we need. I love this mom yoon idea and the co-op too, because when my kids were little, I didn't date forever because I just didn't have anybody to, to babysit. Couldn't afford it for one. And I felt really alone, really, really alone at certain times. So what a good idea. So here you are living in a mom yoon and you've got babysitting. You can go to work, you can date, you can have friends, you can have activities and you've got like friendship. You've, you're living with people who understand what you're going through. 
That's an and awesome the kids idea. and the kids have friendships because there's yes. other children there that they have, and all of a sudden they have kind of brothers and sisters. Yeah, exactly. Wow, I love that. Yeah. What a good idea. What yeah. a good idea. Yeah. Very so, nice. Yeah, I really think people should do that. I mean, I definitely think at least if, you know, do a babysitting co-op because that's it's just it's not a hard thing to set up. And I think that it's just so beneficial. And right. you know, that's that is the hardest thing about having a kid is is driving them places and finding yes. babysitters and all of that. Yep. And we're tired. You know what I mean? Like we're tired at the end of the day, the work day, whatever. You've led such an interesting life. So if somebody wanted to read your books, where are they? Are they on Amazon? Are they in bookstores? Um, you can either get them from Amazon. You can get them from Barnes and Noble. Um, you can get them, you know, order them from any bookstore, I'm sure. And um, I also have my other book that I wrote is about my grandfather because um, I tracked down my birth parents, which was okay. another huge ordeal. And um, I found out my birth grandfather um, was killed by a devil worshiper in 1948 in West Virginia. So I, I did all the research on this story. Wow. It's an amazing story. It's called Devil in the Basement. And so that was also a book that I wrote not too many years ago. And um, yeah, and so, and he was Italian. And there was a lot of prejudice against Italians back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. He was kicked out of his, mm -hmm. of his house um, for being Italian because the CCNR said, you know, no blacks, no Italians, et cetera. Wow. He was kicked out of two law offices for being Italian. And then he had this neighbor who um, was a devil worshiper. I mean, it was just so bizarre, but he was probably one of the first devil worshipers in the United States, this guy named Ernie Yost. And my grandfather had risen up from complete poverty. Everybody was like a coal, you know, in the coal mining world, right. you know, coal miners and just, you know, dirt poor. But my grandfather had become a lawyer and he was going to run for Congress. So he was like the only person in the family who had kind of succeeded financially. And when he was a lawyer, he started representing the devil worshiper's wife in a divorce because the devil worshiper was beating his wife. Oh, and, um, so anyway, he showed up eventually in the law office and with a gun and shot yeah. my grandfather, shot his wife, shot himself, didn't die right away. The devil worshiper didn't, but so that's a, another part of the story. Holy and he also God. set off bombs. He had set off some bombs in the, in, on, you know, in the town. So it was really kind of an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. And well, sad, sad too. Yeah. Very sad. I mean, my grandfather, I feel so close to him, even though I don't know him and he obviously had perseverance and he would had drive and he, you know, didn't care what other people said. He was going to be successful. Right. Alcohol. He, you know, because I've never had a glass of alcohol. We have a lot of stuff in common. I yeah, think. I was going to say, I see where you, <laughs> where you get your drive from. Genetics. <laughs> yeah. True genetics. Wow. That's fascinating. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. So yeah. I have one more question for you. So if you were to go back in time, what would you tell younger you? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I would, you know, tell her that things are going to work out and not to be, um, you know, upset about petty things. Because I know that, you know, when I was younger, you know, I would get upset, for example, when my um, daughter's father broke up with me, you know, when I was pregnant, I was, you know, in tears a lot. I was depressed. I was upset. And, you know, as I got older, I was able to train myself not to be upset over petty things. So I tend to like, 
be a little more high-minded because I put a lot of effort into becoming that way. And right. so I would, I would say, you know, don't get upset over something. It's going to work out fine. You know, just persevere. Um, you Stay know, positive. Success is persistence. The key to happiness is other centrism or doing things for others. Yes. And um, so I would say that, and I would say, you know, try to live in the bold zone, you know, <laughs> um, you know, try to be a life crasher, you know, these some of the things that I say in my books. And so, yeah, I would just try to be upbeat because I do think also society tends to focus on, um, oh, being a single mom is so hard. Oh, it's so bad. I mean, there's a lot of negativity and humans do tend to kind of um, focus on negativity because I think it's from our ancestors when they were like, you know, they're more focused on like, I don't want to be killed as opposed to, oh, I found some nice berries over there, you know? Right, right. And so there's all this negativity out there. And you can see in the news that the negative stories are the ones that always carry the day. Yes. And so I think that a lot of people go into single parenthood with a negative view of like, oh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be terrible. You know, you don't need to think that way. I mean, I didn't think that way and it ended up being great. It, it really wasn't hard to be honest. You know, it was, it was wonderful, but of course I had the tools like the babysitting co-op. Right. Because if I hadn't have had that, it would have been hard. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so, you, you know, had the resourcefulness to look for solutions. Yeah. So and, people should try to be creative and try yes. to come up with those kinds. And of to things. your point, actually. So when I became a single mom, one, I didn't expect to find myself in that situation. And yes, I was a little bit, I was afraid. I was, you know, insecure about my future, whatever. But I'll say this, it's when I flourished. Mm -hmm. Without him, I flourished. I became who I was meant to be as opposed to, you know, this miserable person in, a, in an unhappy relationship. So, right. yeah. And, you know, as a single mom, too, you get to make all the decisions. You don't have yep. to worry about having a conflict with your significant other about, oh, he wants you know, me to do this and I want to do that. Or right. so you get to make the decisions. You can get very close to your child because you're the parent. And so there are a lot of really huge benefits to being a single mom. Yep. And I have I to agree. Should have an optimistic attitude when they go into it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, what my ex used to say, he, one of the things he loved about, um, you know, being a single dad, although I had the kids all the time, he, he had every Friday night and Saturday night to himself. So, and he got to see the kids. So I guess he balanced it out. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Charlotte Laws, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was truly a pleasure. I'm going to look up your books. So again, <laughs> they're uh, Rebel in Heels. Rebel in High Heels. In High Heels. Okay. Undercover Debutante, uh, Devil in the Basement. And then the first book is no longer in print. So, um, but there's a lot of celebrity stuff and crashing and all that kind of stuff in my memoirs. So okay. people get the same kind of information from the memoirs. Perfect. Thank you so very much. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Single Moms with Moxie podcast. It means so much to me that I can share with you. We have some amazing guests coming up in future episodes, so please follow me on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find me on Instagram at Mona underscore Andre. And we even have a Single Moms with Moxie Facebook group. I hope you join. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane.